Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think and to think correctly. Second, the gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message. The sermon this morning is entitled, Think, Worship, Embrace. We're going to be looking this morning at 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 is really one of the highest points of David's life. It's a happy day. Chapter 6 was much the same way. There was great rejoicing. They brought the, tabernacle, the uh, ark into the tabernacle into Jerusalem, and it was a glorious occasion after having a very difficult false start. But this is the pinnacle of all of his happiness coming together here. It's a happy, happy time. Not just a day, not just a week. It's a happy time in his life. But we would be foolish not to think for a moment about what led to this. He was a teenager and overlooked by his father and brothers when Samuel visited their house. But the God of the universe didn't overlook him. And so they called for him to come in from the sheep and wouldn't sit down until he was there. And the moment he comes into the house, Samuel takes out his oil and pours it on his head and says, you, in the name of God Almighty, are the king over Israel, a teenager. And then we've read, we've been looking through it for the last weeks and months. We've seen the difficulty, the valley of vision, the afflictions, the threats on his life, the attempts on his life, the difficulty, the slander, the difficulty in his life over and over and over again. The challenges for the crown, the envy of Saul, and even in the last part of the last chapter, the disregard of one of his wives. But here in chapter 7, it is a happy day. There are many happy days in the lives of a believer here on earth. And there are happy days eternally yet to come. And when we think of the blessings, we also want to think of the nature of God. The blessings come from the goodness of God. And hear this. The afflictions and challenges come from the same goodness of the same God. The same goodness of the same God to shape our souls into the likeness of Christ. And David understands that. And we are to grow in righteousness and by faith in our own understanding of that for every blessing and difficulty in our lives. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word as we turn in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7? Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. But the king said to Nathan the prophet, 
See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may live in their own place, and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
Will you pray with me, please? God, we ask that you would help us now. We come to this, many of us, consciously thinking we need only a little help. When in reality, we are altogether helpless left to ourselves. And the devil, who has been a warrior from his youth, continues to rage as a liar, as the father of lies, as a murderer. And the world continues to lure us with deception and mirage and every form of foolishness and distraction. And our flesh proves to us day after day, week after week, how weak it is. And yet your word calls us to a radical transformation of sanctification by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we should be like Christ. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Walking as children of light. As sons of the Most High God as ambassadors for Christ. God, we have not studied to the level of our calling. And each of us would be guilty of malpractice. So we ask that you would grant us, grant us a holy sobriety, about the high holy privilege of hearing your word. Give us clarity of the folly of neglecting your word. And come now and plant it deep into our souls to the glory of your name and to the benefit of us and those around us. In Christ's name. Amen. This passage represents a great deal of the goodness of God and of the worship of David. He is thankful. He's mindful of who he is. He knows his simple, humble background. He has not lost sight of that at all here. And he is indeed a man after God's own heart. And we see his desire to serve and glorify God. It is a time of great peace as we see him resting in his own house and resting from his enemies. He has built him a house. If you remember, the king to the north sent craftsmen and cedar trees to build him a house. And so he has a lovely new home now and he has peace. So he has some time on his hands and he wants to be diligent and to glorify God. And so he wants to build the house. Matthew Henry says this. I think it's interesting as he calls as King David calls Nathan and runs it by him, Matthew Henry says, How different were the thoughts of David as he sat in his palace from those of Nebuchadnezzar when he walked on his palace walls. The idea of Nebuchadnezzar walking around his palace and just delighting in himself before God brought him low and taught him to worship. But David here, is a humble man, and he's desiring, he sees that this is all from God. 
and he's desiring to glorify God. Mr. Henry says this humble soul is full of contrivance how to glorify and give honor to God. How to glorify and give honor to God. And so even here in this passage, he seeks to glorify God in this situation. He's, he's looking for opportunities to serve God. At first, it seems very good. Uh, David, uh, Nathan says to him, do it. But then immediately God comes to Nathan and says, no, I've got a different plan than that. And we see that unfold in verses 4 and following in particular. What we see here is King David running it by wise counsel. He goes to Nathan and asks Nathan about this. And Nathan gives him an answer that he thinks is right. It seems good and, and wise. But then it turns out that the timing is wrong. And God clarifies that I am going to have a house, but it won't be built by you. And so he clarifies that. And here we see a beautiful example of coming to God in everything, bringing every concern that you have, even when you think it is a very good and right thing. It may not be the right timing. And all things look good and right to us based on our corrupt hearts. So we do want to be very conscious to contemplate and to consider and to seek wise counsel, which he does. But God says to him, no, thank you. Thank you for the gesture. Thank you for the concern. But that's not how it's going to happen. And he goes on and explains to him that indeed he is going to allow his son. Well, we know the rest of the story. We know that that's Solomon. We know that Solomon builds the temple and that it's a glorious temple and a wonderful dedication to that. And we'll pick that up a little bit later, Lord willing, in the uh, preaching as we continue. But David is not going to be a part of that. And God makes it very clear to him. But then he turns it around as God does and says that I'm going to do something great for you. I'm going to do something for you. But he reminds him first and look in verse 8 of chapter 7. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people. He's just reminding David, and David knows it already and certainly embraces it, of his humble background. And he's saying, I'm going to do great things, not only with you, but there's a way to do something even greater than to do it for you, and that would be to do it with a son and with lineage, with a dynasty. So that's what he's going to do, but he reminds him first of his humble background. The Apostle Paul does that for those who are in Christ Jesus, we who are children of the Most High God. In his letter to the church at Corinth, in chapter 1, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, he means us, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And God reminds us of our background and of our present condition as sons and daughters of God and of our future. But in this passage back in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, he 
surprises David. David would have been happy just to simply have the privilege to build the temple. But he says to him, instead, I'm going to build you a dynasty. And we have to have some sense here of the significance of this in light of the fact that there's only been one king so far, one real king. And that's Saul. And his dynasty didn't last. And not only did his dynasty not last, his heirs were extinguished. So there's no possibility of his dynasty lasting. And so this is quite surprising to David that God comes to him and says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a kingdom, a dynasty, and without end. And David comprehends that phrase without end. He has some understanding of what that means. He has some understanding that other dynasties have ended. The longest reigning dynasty on earth is the emperor of Japan. He traces his lineage directly back to 700 years before Christ. That's a long time for one dynasty. But David understood that, indeed, this idea of a never-ending dynasty was virtually unfathomable. And he gets the great privilege that he has. But God, in explaining this, says he is going to correct the sons of David the future kings, but he's not going to reject them. He will correct them, but not reject them, as it is with God and his children, us in the kingdom. He will correct us, but does not reject us. We're familiar with that passage in Hebrews chapter 12. We, as sons and daughters of God, receive the same that God says he will give to Solomon and to the other future kings of Israel, the descendants of David. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 15, he says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there are no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears, as we see Saul. But he says, it'll be different for yours. For your children, I'm going to bless them. I will bless them with correction. Chapter 12, verse 4 says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. And so we see there this mercy of God in correction. And he says, I'm going to do that with your sons, but I will not reject. I will indeed establish that through your descendants, there will always be a king. And of course, it's a prophecy about Christ. The angel Gabriel to Mary makes reference to that in chapter 1 of Luke. After announcing that she will be the mother of the Messiah, Gabriel says to her, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. A thousand years later. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so we see the prophecy, thus says the Lord, and the fulfillment of it a thousand years later in Christ. But back in our passage in 2 Samuel 7, we see that David's response is a very humble, worshipful response to this 
mind-boggling news that he will have an eternal dynasty. Look in your Bibles in verse 18. It says, Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? That's a great verse for memory. That's a great verse to memorize. When I speak with someone about salvation, especially when I speak to people who appear to be evidencing a work of God's grace, I remind them that God passed over the heads of billions of people on his way to their house with that glorious gift of eternal life. Every believer from their heart can say every moment, who am I and what is my family that you have brought me this far? David gets it. David knew God. David knew of Joseph and the struggles and the difficulty that Joseph had gone through and the happy day when he was called from prison and made king over Egypt under Pharaoh. He knew about Moses and Moses having been born into Pharaoh's house virtually, but then wilderness wandering himself for 40 years as a shepherd and then with the children of Israel for 40 more years. But we must come to understand on this happy day when he says, who am I and what is my family that you brought me this far? David is no monarchian heretic. What does that mean? A monarchian heretic believes that God is one way for a period of time and then God changes. David does not believe that God has changed. He understands that he's in an oasis. It's a great oasis, and he's happy to be in that oasis. But David has read the Word of God, and he knows God, and that there are wanderings, there are afflictions, there are difficult times, and he himself has gone through many, and not just for a week or a month, but for years. He knows the nature of God, and he is overwhelmed at this goodness and then this promise of eternal dynasty through his heirs. He knows the nature of God. This is the same God, David is not confused, that was ruling and reigning over all his creatures and all their actions when Saul was trying to kill him. God has not now suddenly got a control of the universe. And while Saul was ruling and reigning over his kingdom and trying to kill David, that somehow God wasn't over control of Saul, David understands that he that watches over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps, that this time of blessing is in the hand of God, and times of affliction are in the hand of God. It's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And he bows low and worships. In verse 20, he says, Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. You know that I'm not worthy of this. This is very similar to Solomon when Solomon comes to power and God appears to him later and says, I liked your dad. Tell me, ask me whatever you will. I'll give it to you because I liked your dad so much. And Solomon has the wisdom to ask for wisdom. He says, I'm just a, I'm just a boy. He has the wisdom to ask for wisdom. Solomon sees his unworthiness and David sees his unworthiness here. In verse 20, 21, he says, 
For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. He recognizes that God has now turned things around 180 degrees for the circumstances of his life. That's the fifth section of Psalm 107. God can do that. He can turn times of great difficulty into times of great blessing, and he often does that. And we need to look for that as children of God. And he is giving God all the glory. David is reflecting, he's remembering, he's considering, he's thinking. David constantly in the Psalms and in his life is thinking about the nature and character of God. What is your response this day, this past week? to the providences of God in your life. The call to worship this morning said from Psalm 103, this this verse that's almost too familiar to us, for most of us, the call to worship said, Bless the Lord, he's preaching to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Remember. Remember, consider them, think on the nature of God. Think, David says to himself, how God was with you in every difficult circumstance when Saul was trying to kill you. Think how God caused a deep sleep to fall over Saul. Think how God put Saul in your hand in the cave. And had Saul been listening carefully, he would have been able to hear you breathe. Think on the goodness and the personal attentiveness and the power of God. And he does. And he recites those wonderful things in Psalm 103 and in other places. We today have the same challenge. We today must be thinking and considering the very nature of who God is. It is what brought David through so many difficult circumstances that allowed him to manage in times of blessing. He was thinking on the nature of God. The Lord Christ instructs us to do the same. I printed the passage in your bulletin. It's Luke chapter 12 on the front of your bulletin. And he, that is Christ, said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Most of us here know that, but we know it as poetry rather than as real. To hold all things, every material concern in the palm of your hand, and let the Lord give, and let the Lord take away, and blessed be the name of the Lord. And if you've walked with God long, you'll know that there's a third phrase that should always be with those two phrases, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And the third phrase is the Lord gives again. The Lord does give, and the Lord does take away, and the Lord does give again. He is a good God. Back in our passage in your bulletin from Luke 12. Consider, that means think. It means observe. It means watch. It means make rational deductions. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. 
And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? He says, consider the ravens, God fed them. And then we remember that God fed the Hebrew children in the manna in the wilderness for 40 years. And the Lord Christ in John chapter 6 feeds the 5,000. Consider the lilies, says Christ, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? Moses, you remember in Deuteronomy, preaches five sermons. That's what Deuteronomy is. It's five sermons to the next generation, the generation that was born into the wilderness and was not there when the people came out of Egypt and passed through the Red Sea and then turned and looked to see Pharaoh and all of his army drowned. They weren't there, and so he preaches five sermons to them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he says, Look at your shoes. Look at your clothes. They haven't worn out. For 40 years, your shoes haven't worn out. Your clothes haven't worn out. Because God has sustained you. So when you go into Israel, when you go to the promised land, don't be obsessed about your clothes and about your shoes and about your material possessions. Because God is able to sustain you. And then to make it even clearer, he ordained that when they went in, one week a year, they would move out of their houses. Everybody in Israel, for a week, move out of your house, into the backyard, in a tent. Lest you put down too deep a root on the things of this world, and forget that you're aliens and strangers in this world, and that your home is in heaven. You men of little faith, says the Lord Christ. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink. And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be added to you. That's what David is doing, and that's what Christ is calling us to do. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Gladly to give you the kingdom. Well, we know this passage. Those of you who have been around the church, we know this passage well. It's from the Sermon on the Mount as well in Matthew. We know this passage well. But Martin Lloyd-Jones knows that we don't think about this passage. We know about this passage, and we might have a warm thought when somebody else brings it to our mind. But Martin Lloyd-Jones says, don't wait for somebody else to bring it to your mind. You become an effective preacher of righteousness to your own soul, and you think on these things. Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not think. 
He allows circumstances to bludgeon him. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic. And we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not just sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them. Draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field. Consider them. Faith, if you like, can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking. How's that for a definition of faith? When everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense, the trouble with a person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, Sinclair Ferguson says, where does your mind go when it has no place to go? In other words, where's the default screen of your mind? Instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. A failure to think. Oh, brothers and sisters, how valuable that could be, this entire front of your bulletin this week, this month, this year as you contemplate the blessings and the challenges of God, as he shapes your soul through both. The Apostle Paul encouraged the church at Corinth in a similar manner. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we find this, verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's what Martin Luther, excuse me, what Martin Lloyd-Jones means when he says think. Think on the nature of God. Now we are taking every thought captive. Think on the nature of God. To the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Insist upon it for yourself and exhort others to do the same. Think on the nature and the truths of God and of God's word. We must learn the ways of God. Francis Chan reminds us that Isaiah 55 says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so higher his thoughts and his ways above ours. And then Francis Chan says, every aspect of God is like that. Not just his holiness or just his wisdom. Every aspect of God is infinitely beyond us. 
And we want to preach effectively to our own souls and then to others as well regarding this great God we serve. In your bulletin on the second page under the title of the sermon, there is a quote here from Edward Payson from the 19th century. He says this, Your only safety lies in placing yourself in circumstances which will make exertion necessary. And sometimes you won't do that, and so God will do it for you. And which will secure divine assistance. Never mind your infirmities, you have nothing to do with them. Your business is to trust and to go forward. If you wait till the sea becomes land, you will never walk on it. You must leave the ship and, like Peter, set your feet upon the waves and you will find them marble. That same Edward Payson says something about worrying when you shouldn't. The God of the universe promises us that when we have reason to be concerned, he says, you can cast that on me. Casting all your anxieties upon him, knowing that you care, he cares for you. Cast your burden upon the Lord, and he will sustain you. But Edward Payson understands he doesn't take your anxieties when they're only perceived. Anticipated sorrows are worse than real sorrows. Because Christ does not support you in them. What a, what a sobering thought. Christ does not support you in anticipated sorrows because they are not real. If it hasn't happened yet, you let it go. Every day has enough concerns of its own. You deal with what is before you. And you put that upon the Lord. Amen. We often ask our good God to change our situation, not knowing put us in this situation to change us. In every blessing, not just affliction, in every blessing, in every affliction, Let us be quick to go to the throne of grace on our knees and ask God, how may you be glorified in this? And finally, the best use of imagination is creativity. And the worst use of imagination is anxiety. Brothers and sisters, we must change. The Bible tells us that when Mary heard from Gabriel all that was happening, and then she sees the shepherds coming and worshiping and telling her and Joseph that the angels appeared to them. And then the shepherds go home. The Bible tells us that Mary treasured all these things and pondered them. She considered them. She thought about them and made deductions about God and about his faithfulness, and about who this is in the manger. It tells us that the same Mary, when her son at 12 years old rebukes her, she comes looking for him and can't find him. She's looking in all the places that a 12-year-old boy might be, but he's in the temple. And he says, did you not know I must be about my father's business? 
She doesn't really know what to say. But on the way back home, the Bible says, Mary pondered all these things. She considered them. She thought about them. And God would have us again and again and again to ponder these things. Mary will gather more and more information about Jesus and about God. There'll be more pieces of God's nature and of His character. And she'll be fitting them together in harmony as she walks with her Son, the Lord Christ, the God of the universe. And Mary will discover that God is bigger than she ever thought. And that God's ways are not her ways. Back in our passage in 2 Samuel 7, verse 28 says, Now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are truth. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. David is thinking on the phrase, Thus says the Lord. He knows that Nathan is reliable as a communicator of the things of God. And he sure knows that God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? God is constantly saying to his people through the word of God and by his spirit, using the word of God, God is constantly saying, thus says the Lord. And the devil is constantly saying, has God said? The child of God becomes an effective preacher of righteousness, preaching to his own soul, taking up the armor of God from Ephesians 6 and preaching to himself with the shield of faith and the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation. In the wilderness temptation, the Lord Christ quotes Scripture. And on the cross, the Lord Christ quotes Scripture. We only get the first line of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the Lord Christ surely would have memorized that psalm, knowing he was facing that day. And he's preaching to himself the glorious news that his death is going to bring a blessing to all peoples and all nations, as it says in Psalm 22. What is the application? The application is that in every circumstance, know God and preach to yourself, this is what the Lord says. How do I utilize this blessing? How do I glorify God in this situation, whether it be affliction or otherwise? Know God, this is what the Lord says, and know your enemy, that he will come, and he will rend, and he will twist, and he will say, has God said? Remember, observe, consider, think, worship, and embrace. The Lord Christ says, do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Faith is like a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. The trouble with a person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. And as we put it, he goes round and round in circles. That is the essence of worry. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought. It is a failure 
to think. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge before you how unfruitful we are as preachers of righteousness to our own souls and how often we demonstrate our fear as we approach your throne of grace rather than exercising our faith. God, teach us to think, to consider the lilies, to consider the ravens, to consider your nature and your steadfast love that endures forever, to consider your glory, to consider your person in the Holy Spirit, your presence, your power. God, we want what you want. And our prayer is that you would indeed Command whatever you will and grant whatever you command. Strengthen us then, God, that in every circumstance, by blessing or affliction, that we would adorn the gospel by our lives and by our lips. That people would see our confidence in you, our love, our trust. I rest in you and glorify your holy name. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forever. Amen.
You've been listening to Head, Heart, and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reformed Church meets on Sunday mornings at 1030 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us and you to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, Don't do that to me, worship God. He did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God. Focus on God, not the messenger. Concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree. And we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit rivercityreform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see. Come and see.